Welcome to the Constructionist Podcast, hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey, and every week, Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's word. Welcome back to the Constructionist Podcast. And have you ever thought about the disciples of Jesus and how he called them and who they were as people? There's kind of a subconscious idea or an unconscious idea that we have if we've grown up in the church that Jesus called these guys and they were all about his age or even older. I remember years ago uh, watching or seen clips from old films about Jesus in the 50s and 60s. And they were showing Jesus walking along, and he was a guy about 30 years old. And then all of his disciples behind him were old guys. They looked like they were in their 50s or whatever. And I'm going to say right now that that is patently untrue. I don't believe any of Jesus' disciples that he called were his age or older. They were not, and I'll explain why. So recently in our fellowship Bible study, we were going through, are going through the gospel of Luke, and it's being taught by somebody else, not me, but uh, we were on Luke chapter five, and it's about the calling of five of Jesus's disciples, as well as healing a leper and uh, a guy in the synagogue with a lame hand and that. But I just want to point out the actual calling of Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and Peter, James, Peter and Andrew were brothers, and James and John were brothers, right, so those four guys, and then also later he calls Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. So who were these guys? What was the culture of the day like when it came to rabbis and following rabbis and things like that? Now, I am in some ways, uh, indebted to Ray Vandalin for some of this education that I received because he has done a lot in the field of first century study on disciples and rabbis and the education and things like that. But uh, also, uh, if you look at the old writings of Alfred Edersheim uh, and, of course, other scholars out there that have talked about the ancient uh, first century Jewish education systems and stuff. So I think this is absolutely culturally correct in the setting of the first century. And I think that it will maybe surprise you a little bit and I hope encourage you at the same time. So what happened back in the day in the first century Judaism was that the land area of Galilee had a huge number of uh, I mean, I say huge, but I mean, it's a small place. But they had a almost a disproportionate amount of scholars up in that area. So uh, I've heard that in the Mishnah, which is the, the Jewish traditional writings that um, include rabbis from the first century BC into the first century AD and then onwards up into about the third century AD, but, the, but uh, the rabbis that are traditionally associated with the area around Galilee, are out, they outnumber other rabbis from Jerusalem or wherever they know they can link these guys. So that area 
was sort of an uh, academic powerhouse, you could say. Because when the Jews came back from Babylon, they, under Ezra and Nehemiah, they tended to settle around Jerusalem, obviously, because that was the, the capital city. But the Samaritans were still living in the big middle chunk between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. And so the fertile lands around the northern and western side of the Sea of Galilee is the other place where loads of the Jews came back and settled. So that's why in the Gospels, when it talks about the two main regions that of Israel that it talks about is the Galilee region, and then they always have to try to get themselves around Samaria somehow and then go down to Jerusalem. And those are kind of the two main things. Everything else was Greek-occupied, Roman-occupied, uh, or Samaritan-occupied, that kind of thing. So that was sort of the world in which Jesus and his disciples grew up in. So the, the Jewish strongholds were Jerusalem and Galilee, in effect. So loads of rabbis came from the Galilee region, which is exactly where Jesus came from. He came from the Galilee region. And so he, God, in his infinite wisdom, and in the fullness of time, Paul says, plops Jesus right down in the middle of basically uh, Jewish academia, academia at the time. So he would have grown up, and so would have John, James, Andrew, Paul. Uh, well, Paul lived in um, Antioch. He grew up out. Well, he was sent to probably very, well, he was. He was sent to Jerusalem as a young boy to study. But they all would have grown up in first going to Torah school, where they would have learned Torah. So just the other day, I was watching um, a, vi a supplementary video to The Chosen stuff, and they were talking about how Matthew was educated and was able to read, but a lot of the other people of that age were not able to read and write. And I would heavily disagree with that, because the Jewish people after Babylon, after the exile, recognized that the reason why they were exiled into Babylon is because they neglected the law of the Lord. The, the, the prophets say this over 40 times. If you read Isaiah all the way through to uh, Malachi, over 40 times, these 15 prophets say again and again that they were sent off or will be sent off because they have ignored or neglected or disobeyed the law of the Lord. So it became very important to the leadership of Israel when they came back from Babylon to instill into the population the knowledge of the law. And so Torah school through the synagogues became the first step in stopping any idolatry from taking place. And in the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, there is not a hint anywhere of any kind of idolatry among the Jewish people. So you certainly get that in the book of Acts when you go to, when you go to uh, Athens or um, other places. The, the history of, you know, the archaeology of that era was the plethora of gods that, that never changed. And yet the Jewish people were unique in the whole of the Roman Empire in that they had one god that they worshipped and they were adamant that there was only one god to worship and they would not worship any other god. So <clears throat> that's where they stood. And the one reason why they stood there is because of the education that they, all the young boys got growing up in Torah class. So, they, so basically every male uh, in Jesus' day would have had at least the Torah memorized is what would have been the case. And so, and they would have been able to read it. So if you're going to, because they, you know, the synagogues had their Torah scrolls and that would have been something that was taught to them. 
So I disagree with this idea that the, a lot of the disciples were illiterate, um, or even a lot of Jews were illiterate. They were actually highly illiterate, and so were the girls. The girls had to memorize the book of Deuteronomy and the Psalms and that kind of thing. So I, I, it frustrates me when, you know, in the Chosen film, when they show uh, Mary Magdalene teaching the other lady how to read. It's like well, she, she would have known how to read at the very least. They may not have thrown themselves into the study of the literature because books were not widely available, but the uh, synagogues had their scrolls. And you could go there and you could hear what was being, what was being read and you would have been taught these things when you were little. So, uh, so that was step one. It was Torah school. And then, of course, at the same time, uh, when the boys got a bit older, say t 11, 12, 13, there was another step that they could go to, uh, which is uh, Bet Midrash, which is sort of an a investigation school where you would study uh, sort of how the law works and its details and, and things like that. And that would last for a couple of years. Not all kids went to that school. Some of them would just go off and learn a trade with their, learn their father's trade. But if you were very clever, by the time you were about 15 or so, you could, you could go and seek out a rabbi to learn from, to study directly under. And so you would go to these rabbis, just like we do today, you know, kids today who are 18 and they finish up with high school, and it's like, oh, are you gonna go to university? Yes, I'm gonna go to university. Well, where are you gonna go? Well, I've applied to blah, blah, blah. So you can apply to universities and be denied, or, uh, what we have today as well is that universities will look out for kids who are doing really well in their, in their um, schooling and in their academic studies, and they may be offered a scholarship. Okay? So those are the two ways today that you either apply to a school and get accepted and then work hard to stay in that school, or you are uh, offered a scholarship by a school and you can choose to go to one or the other, whichever one you want to pick. So in, in Jesus' day, the kids would go and they would seek a rabbi. Now, typically the rabbis would never choose disciples. They would let the disciple come to them and then they would charge money for that child to be, for that kid to be their student, just like we do today when you pay to go to higher education. So not much has changed really. Humans are humans. Uh, these kind of systems have always been in place and always will be in place. Um, so that then speaks to what Jesus says in his upper room discourse in John 13, 14, 15, 16. If you remember there, Jesus says, I did not you did not choose me, but I chose you. So Jesus actually was a rabbi that would choose his own disciples. And he wasn't choosing disciples who were part of another rabbi's school. He was choosing disciples that were sitting at work. <laughs> and, Matt, and Luke 5 points this out. So if you go to Luke 5, it says that Peter and James and John and Andrew were all out fishing. And as they were fishing, Jesus came along and he was teaching the crowds. And because there was lots of traveling rabbis in those days, and there was rabbis that would go around and they would, they would be Torah teachers. And as Torah teachers, they would be telling parables and expounding Torah because that was the way of life. That was how the Jews were going to maintain their purity and they were going to walk in, um, uh, in, a, in a good and, and harmonious relationship with God. 
and each other. It was by understanding Torah. So different teachers are better at some things than others, and we still have that today. You may have two different guys teaching the exact same thing, uh, but one of them is really good at it, and will and will you'll be riveted listening to what they have to say, and another guy may be dull and boring on the same subject. So no real difference today. There were different rabbis that were going around, and, and uh, they were teaching, and they were acquiring their students here and there. And so Jesus goes out, and he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John, and he calls them to be his disciples. And in one of the Gospels, it says that James and John left their father in the boat, and they went and followed Jesus. Now, I've heard sermons where they've said, oh, how do you think the dad feels? I mean, two of his sons have now just abandoned the business, and that was quite a sad. It's like, no, actually, Zebedee, their father, if he would have realized that if that rabbi who can heal the sick is calling his sons to be his disciples, that it was a high honor. That was a great thing because rabbis didn't just call students. I think there was one that did. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head. Um, But otherwise, they just would go and these were guys that maybe they loved the Torah and they loved the word of God and they had tried to get into somebody else's uh, rabbi rabbinical school, but they were denied because of the rabbis, whatever, whatever reason. They weren't good enough in the eyes of that rabbi. So Jesus chose them to be his disciples. Jesus kind of got the the dregs, you could say, of the other rabbis, the stuff that the other rabbis didn't want. Jesus took them to himself, and he then became their rabbi, and they would follow him. So Peter and James and John and Andrew were just, they they had consigned, they had resigned themselves to being fishermen and taking over their father's business and providing for their family. We know Peter was married and he had a mother-in-law and so he would have been responsible for for that kind of thing. Uh, James and, and uh, John were working with their father so they may have been 14, 15 years old. John may have been even younger. Um, and so to be chosen by this rabbi to go and learn from him as the expectation that he's the Messiah was a big deal. He'd, so that sort of puts a different spin on who Jesus is calling to be his disciples. Now, Paul comes along and says to the Corinthians, who were a people who were steeped in Greek mythology and Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom. So when you think about the Greeks, you have to think about them lifting up man as the epitome of the greatest of creation, okay? The Greeks deified man, and all of their gods were basically hyperinflated elements of human um, qualities and characteristics. And so they boosted those these qualities and characteristics and turned... And, and created different gods to represent them and or elements of nature or something like that. But because the gods were just a reflection of themselves anyway, they were corrupt and they were fallible. And they made mistakes and they, they did stupid things. And there was nothing you could do about it because you're basically deifying all the different qualities of humans. Humans are corrupt and fallible and screw up all the time because we are just 
humans. That's just the way it is. You can't find a human out there anywhere. We live in an age nowadays where we try to say that, that all humans are innately good and somehow their environment makes them um, bad or if we don't cater things for them to make them happy, they'll turn out bad or something like that. But the philosophy of the Bible is the exact opposite. It says humans start out as depraved and wicked and full of sin and that God has to step in and change the human heart to make it something that reflects his goodness and his love and his compassion and, and the things that are of him. So Paul writing to the, Corinth, to the Corinthians was saying that the wisdom of God is so great that even if you could apply foolishness to God, the foolishness of God is so much wiser than the highest wisdom of men. So he's writing to them and using their own terminology and their own understanding. And, um, and he's saying that if you could say, God is so holy and so righteous and so wise and so uh, broad in his power and scope to make this whole world and all the intricacies in it, and that if you could even claim that the term foolishness can be stuck to God, that is still wiser than anything that humans could possibly conjure up within themselves. So it's a lovely um, analogy or picture or, or, or idea there that Paul throws at us. But it shows us in the life of Jesus that he is doing things that to us look stupid. Because everyone knows that the universities all want the best students. And everybody knows that the teachers want the brightest kids in their class because that makes them look good, that they've got this, this really good student in their class. And so as humans, we focus on that which is, to our eyes, the most beautiful and the most wise in the, as we can see it and the most intelligent and the strongest and the fastest. We focus on all of these external things. So the book of Samuel points this out. It says that Saul was basically chosen. God gave Saul as king to the Israelites uh, the kind of king that they wanted. They didn't want God to be king. They wanted their own king. So, God, so he said, fine, I'll give you your own king. So he gave them Saul, who was tall and handsome and uh, the kind of guy everyone would look at from the outside and say, oh, he's going to be a great king. But the reality was, is on the inside, he showed himself to be fallible and selfish and a bit narcissistic. And eventually it, it, um, everything just collapsed around him in the end. So we had this exact same thing happen when Bill Clinton was elected president in America. People said, oh, he looks great on TV and he's much more eloquent speaker and he's more handsome than Bob Dole or whoever he ran against. And so people voted for him. And then you had the same thing happen when Barack Obama ran for president. People were saying, oh, it's about time that a black guy is running for president. I'm going to vote for him. It's about time a black guy. He'll be a great president and all this. And yet we all know that at the end of, and then he was given the Nobel Peace Prize. But at the end of his eight years as president, the nation was having race riots and so much stuff was in turmoil and everyone was flipping out about universal health care and all this stuff. So he actually left the nation in kind of a worse social political state than he did when he started. But because people were looking at the surface level, they were looking at what they could see on the outside. Whereas it says in the book of Samuel that God looks at the heart 
And so when Samuel was sent to anoint David as king, he went through all the brothers and he was like, oh, the eldest one is handsome and he's strong and he surely must be the Lord's anointed. And God said, no. And the second one came and God said, no. And the third one came and God said, no. Finally, he got down to the, to the last seventh brother who was out tending the flocks in the fields and wasn't even there when they initially gathered everyone together. They pulled because they're like, oh, there's no way he's going to be chosen as king. And, but that is the one that God chose to be king. And so there's Peter and James and John and Andrew. They're all sitting there in their boat with their smelly fish, having worked all night. They were tired, probably hungry, ready to go to bed. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, come follow me. And he fills their boats full of fish and he goes off and he follows them. Now, Matthew is in exactly the same sort of position. He was sitting there in the tax booth. He was in cahoots with the Romans because he was collecting taxes from his people to give to the Romans. All throughout the history of the human race, taxes have been the bane to the average working man. Nobody wants, wants to pay taxes. So it's even worse when you're invaded and you have an occupying army in your country and one of your own people says, okay, I'll collect taxes for them. So he gets the job. Matthew's father got the job as a tax collector. Don't watch The Chosen. That's probably not how it actually happened where Matthew was estranged from his parents because of the decision he made. Matthew was very likely, you know, a 16-year-old kid sitting there and taking over his father's business. And so it's likely that, that his dad actually was the one who was uh, the, the primary tax collector. Matthew would sit there because he's a clever kid. He's good at math or whatever. So he's over there sitting there collecting the money and doing the, doing, keeping records and stuff like that while his dad is, is interacting with the person or whatever the situation is. It's a very plausible uh, uh, possibility of what's going on. And so he left that position of of, of, you know, an affluent lifestyle. But because he was associated with the Romans and dealing with Roman money, Roman money had images of Caesar on it. Caesar, in the days of Jesus, considered himself the son of God because Caesar's father was declared God by the Roman Senate after he died. So the Caesar that was Caesar in the days of Jesus was considered the son of God because his father was declared God by the Roman Senate. So they're dealing with this money now that in the eyes of the Jews has a false God on it. And so that makes it even worse when you consider that Matthew was a tax collector. Not only was he in cahoots with the, uh, with the Romans and taking money from Jews, his fellow Jews, to give to the Romans just so they can fund their oppressive... Um, you know, their oppressive uh, uh, occupation of their country and all of their idol, all idols and false worship and all that that comes with it. But he's dealing with money that has false gods on it on a daily basis. So in the eyes of every rabbi, he would have been unclean. He would have been filthy. He would have been a traitor. He would have been all these things. And yet Jesus comes and says to him, looks him straight in the eye and says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. So who is Jesus calling? He's calling these people that were the, the C students. He was calling people that were not uh, the most intelligent. They had menial jobs. They had jobs that were despised uh, by the average person. And yet he wanted them to be his 
disciples and to train them in the ways of God. And so that's what we should look at now as a great encouragement to us because God has chosen us. If you're a believer and if you have found him to be faithful to you in giving your soul rest and peace and cleansing you of your sins and giving you an assurance that you are his, he has chosen you not because of his great, um, not because of your great anything, but he's chosen you because he sees in you the same thing he saw in Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew. He saw a person who has a heart to seek him and to know him and to be faithful to him and to, and to allow him to magnify himself through you. That's what God has seen. So live a life where God can magnify himself through you. And in the process, there will be a blessing that will come and a peace and all these things. So um, be blessed. Go read Luke chapter 5. Uh, get into the scriptures. Seek to see things from God's perspective and pray for his wisdom in understanding the world around us. And God bless you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today, please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like. You're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. That's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com. And remember to leave a comment at iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts.